1959, Gregory Peck was a household name. He'd already been nominated for four Oscars as a leading man, covering multiple genres. Now, 15 years into a very successful career as an actor, he decided to turn to producing as an additional avenue to explore the world of filmmaking. Partnering with Cy Bartlett, a screenwriter from 20th Century Fox, they founded Melville Productions. The first film released from the studio was 1959's Pork Chop Hill, a Korean war drama which starred Peck and was a modest success and received moderate critical acclaim. In search of the production company's next film, Peck settled in on the 1957 novel written by prolific novelist and occasional Hollywood screenwriter John D. MacDonald. That book was called The Executioners, which had its title changed for the film adaptation to Cape Fear. The recent Gregory Peck collaborator J. Lee Thompson, director of The Guns of Navarone, would ultimately direct Cape Fear. He was not the original name in mind. The film was supposed to be directed by Alfred Hitchcock, one of the defining voices in cinema for the entirety of his career, reaching new heights in the early 60s after the success of his adaptation of Psycho. The storyboards Hitchcock made for this film before walking away due to disagreements with the producers were still used as the basis for the photography of the film. Thompson would in fact use many Hitchcock-esque directing notes and styles to pay homage to the filmmaker in this movie he almost made himself. The result is a suspense thriller film that is perfectly in line with this era of Hitchcock's filmmaking, combined with some of the slick southern dialogue and drawl of the two lead actors. The film was not the success that the company was hoping for. On a budget of $3 million, the film grossed only $5 million, which in Hollywood accounting is a major loss. The film was also not horribly well received critically. At the time, much of the major films hitting theaters were far more conservative than a story of a rapist getting his comeuppance against the prosecutor who locked him up. This disappointment at the box office and in reviews ultimately led to Melville Productions shuttering its doors. However, the film would go on to gain new life by making constant appearances on various directors' favorite films lists, and several top 100 films lists, most notably appearing on the AFI's list. Because of this status as a director's favorite, it only made sense that when interest in a remake first came about, that the director of the late 80s, early 90s was going to make it, Steven Spielberg. However, Spielberg had begun to sour on the idea of doing such a violent film and became drawn to a different film that was being made by a peer of his, Schindler's List, and its original director, Martin Scorsese. The two top-tier directors got together and decided to trade films, Spielberg taking the reins of the Holocaust drama and Scorsese coming in to breathe new life into a thriller classic. Featuring a stacked cast and appearances from three of the lead actors from the original, Scorsese wove together a bloodier, more sexually charged follow-up to the original. Creating new story elements and expanding upon lighter-used characters, the remake of Cape Fear grossed $182 million on a budget of $35 million, making it a commercial success and earned Oscar nominations for its leading man and supporting actress. This film brought audiences back into the uneasy feelings of law outside of a courtroom in the South and the fear of danger on the Cape. Welcome to the follow-up. Okay, so this is our um, this is our first remake that we have talked about. Uh, we we have gone obviously into doing nothing but but sequels before but this is the first time that we're getting into uh, a film that has already existed and is now an attempt at tackling um, 
the same story and, you know, kind of reworking it or expanding upon it. It's kind of, um, it's a whole different bend, obviously, than doing a sequel, because in a sequel you are building on top of the story in, in continuing elements, accepting that everything that happened in the original happened canonically and then creating uh, new avenues for those characters or situations thematically or, or uh, uh, narratively to go forward. Whereas in this, you don't have to accept anything, right? That is the, the there's so many, it sounds so stupid to say, here's, here's the difference between a remake and a sequel. But speaking from what we're most interested in talking about, it really is like you can add and subtract or alter as much as you want in a remake, mm-hmm. right? There is no guideline towards how stringent you must be in uh, maintaining the original source material. Because and, if, if it were just a shot-for-shot shot remake, what's the point? Right. It, it would lose a lot of the, the reason for being, the, the raison d'etre. Literally the French for reason to be. Mm. So in that respect, you know, I can appreciate the want to make this. And Scorsese is such a big film dude. Like, there's directors who are, I mean, they make fucking movies. And then there's Scorsese, who, like, has a company that he funds that's sole job is to go find and preserve classic but in danger of being lost films. Mm. Like, he's a, he's, a, he's a nerd's nerd when it comes to this type of shit. So you, you get why he would have such interest in a film that wasn't critically successful but, you know, had a, a major influence on cinema. However, there's some pretty big changes in terms of the themes and the characters. And I think it's varying degrees of success. Uh, I'm actually tempted to say that almost none of it is successful. Um, But I I guess we'll kind of get into it. So before we get into the plot and then by extension the characters because that's where most of the changes are. There's, there's some there's some big changes to plot, especially in like the second half, but for the for the most part, it's story structure-wise relatively similar. Um, w- sorry, I was going to say, before we get to all that, what was your impression of the original? What was your impression of the remake? The remake, I think, really upped the ante- in well, here, actually, if I could cut you off, tell me about the original first. Just like, you don't have to get into any specifics. How'd you like it? Uh, things you liked about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought it was, I mean, it's tough to say, like, it plays like a classic film when it's, like, about such a terrible subject matter, like a, a rapist and a and a perv. But oh, I, there's lots of them. M, the Fritz Long Classic is about a man murdering children in the streets of Berlin. (laughs) Yeah, like it it happens, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's the film, like, well, not only, what year was that first one? 60? First one was 62, I believe. Um, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's shot in that, like, I don't know, like, it's like a softer, how do I put it? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the first one in, in contrast to the second one a little bit in order to kind of get my thoughts out here. But the second one, like, it's like you're, it's telling you the moments when you're supposed to feel 
the shock of something or the suspense of something. It's or, bigger. Yes. Yeah. Whereas in the original, I feel like it everything exactly plays out and you're you're experiencing it as it as it goes and therefore like you're you're feeling everything the characters are feeling and but nobody's telling you this is exactly how you're supposed to feel about this. Um like there's there's none of those like uh dun 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 like in the second one like they really play up like the 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 visual effects along with this the music stings and the 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 different kind of i don't know like visual or, or like uh, composition techniques and everything like that whereas the first one it's it's really well shot it's funny you mentioned the music because i was thinking this we watched the the uh, the remake twice just to make sure that we had down what we wanted to say about it, cover our first remake effectively. And I was thinking about the music upon watching, because it is the same score as the original. But it feels worse employed. Yeah. <laughs> it it feels like they try to play more with the... It feels like they try to play more with the dynamics of it, which is the when you're speaking of dynamics in musical terms, it's volume, essentially. Mm. So it feels like they, they try to play more with the dynamics, but it, to your... And again, it's it made me maybe it's not maybe it was the same volume and yeah. the, on all the same dynamics as in the original, but for some reason maybe it's coupled with the the, the heightened violence and much much bigger acting yeah. of the second one. It made the music also feel louder and somehow less effective. So I think when the acting and the rest of the film is a little bit more demure. Having the music be as stand out and violent lets it be more impactful than if it's trying to topple over six other things that are also very in your face. Yeah, there wasn't much overacting in the first film, too, which is what I think it coupled nicely with the with the music or whatever the dynamics were with that. But, you know, everyone was 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 doing their job and. Unlike you know Jessica Lang in the second one, who we'll talk about more. Yeah, we're going to talk about. If you like, if I list the cast, I'll do it right now. You're from the sequel, the remake, I should say. It's like, oh my god, all these great actors. But then if you really think about who this cast is, it's like, oh, these are like four of the biggest, like loudest actors mm. of this this era. And it's when you think about the original and those actors, it's like, oh. That's kind of funny because the the original's cast is like Martin Balsam. <laughs> it's Gregory Peck right before he does Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. So this is, even though it feels in the modern context very To Kill a Mockingbird-esque in his law, um, or his courtroom performances, it is actually technically before, not technically, literally, before To Kill a Mockingbird. So that's with a retroactive sense. It doesn't matter. Uh, even the acting of Robert Mitchum is like way quieter. Whereas the, the cast of the, the remake is Nick Nolte being gigantic. Mm -hmm. Jessica Lange being like, you will remember that I am in this fucking movie. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Robert De Niro, who is gigantic in this. And Juliette Lewis, who is like, I am going to be an actress now. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's big. Definitely. It's so big. Well, and, the other thing about the first, um, the, the original is, I think it was like the perfect, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, the perfect amount of creepy. Like you, you left feeling like, 
you know, in the scenes you're supposed to like a little icky, like, oh, he is really a piece of shit. And oh, he really did do these, these awful things. Whereas in the, in the remake, you know, you understand very early on in the film exactly who all of these characters are, exactly how you're supposed to feel about them. And so you carry that energy through the film. There's nothing left up to the imagination, really, in the remake. Whereas in the first one, like you're, you know, you and I talked about this, I mean, off air, but like there's a the element of doubt that's introduced in the first film that's definitely not present in the second one. Yeah, so I guess uh, that's a good segue into starting to talk about, I guess, the plot of the film. So uh, the the remake, the 91 version, starts with, well, it starts technically on a Juliet Lewis, like, down the gun <laughs> monologue about, about Cape Fear, which was kind of weird. Well, like, I had actually forgot it from our first viewing of it. And then when the movie started on it in the second viewing, I was like, wait, wait, I just saw, I just saw this movie and do not remember this scene. And it's because it never comes back up. And it's kind of, well, it's kind of confusing because it's almost saying like, you guys saw the original, right? Like, because <laughs> otherwise this makes no fucking sense. It was interesting because I I too noticed it for the the first time when we watched it again but it also bookends the film that's how it starts and that's how it ends and i paid like careful attention to what she was actually saying in her like opening i guess monologue or line um and i didn't get all of it but what i did get was um something 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 the uh, that the magic would end and the real life would come crashing in and like i don't know if you if you sit with that through the whole film i'll just give you like what the last line was if I can find it in my notes. Because um, I was like, there's got to be a reason he opened the film like this, right? Um, uh, and in the end, it ends with that same weird effect of like the negative film. Oh, yeah, film. I have thoughts on that. The negative film, her eyes then go red. Um, and, and she talks about in the, the ending monologue is longer than the beginning one, but she talks about how like, oh, I don't dream about him anymore or something like that. But then she says, if you hang on to the past, you die a little every day. And for myself, I know I'd rather live. So I just like, I know we're supposed to, to glean something from that. Like the, that very like, I guess, poetic and, and deliberate start and end to the film, but I haven't made much sense of it. Maybe we'll, we'll get to it. Well, That's one of the things is it's like. The movie is trying so hard. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of the original, they try to heighten and amplify and and get, dig into some greater understanding or or at least um, introduce more, just more to it. We will be the most of this part of the film that we can be, and it's it it it's like well, I don't understand. Let's get into it because because I want to bring up specific points mm -hmm, <laughs> to mm -hmm. illustrate the point that I'm about to make, but we might as well just talk about the movie. Okay. So like you were saying, our first real introduction to the film that kind of thrusts us into it is Bobby De Niro. So in the original, we never see we only meet Robert Mitchum later in the movie. Not like later, but we, we, we only meet him, I should say, later after he had been released from prison. We meet Bobby De Niro being released from prison. And oddly enough, 
moments before he is to be released, he is pushed uh, two beds together, two cots together in his prison cell and is doing shirtless dips. I mean, literally, they're there and they're like, all right, Bobby, let's get out of here. Today's like, the day. It's like, yeah. why are you in the middle of a workout? This doesn't make it doesn't matter. But you're introduced to him as as a tattoo laden, greased back hair, bad tooth, bad attitude guy. And it it is such a sharp contrast because in the original, when you meet Robert Mitchum, he is wearing like He's dapper. Either it's a white suit or it's like a light pastel that doesn't quite show the hues in black and white. Like, you know, it, it's very Southern gentleman, mm-hmm. which makes complete sense because you cast Robert Mitchum in this role to be a vaguely threatening Southern gentleman. And that's Robert Mitchum in real life. Mm-hmm. So um, like when you meet him, to go back to this feeling of doubt that Kel was talking about early on, you don't quite know who he is yet. You can get the aura that he's threatening. Mm-hmm. But with how he's presented and uh, in, both in his uh, his acting and in his character uh, what was the word? character design, he, you are you are left kind of uncertain, like, okay, I, I get that there is the act of threatening here. But what I don't I'm not quite able to elicit is, is it warranted? Like, is he being threatening? Because he was wronged, or is he being threatening because he's like a loose cannon maniac? Mm. And in Bobby De Niro's case, when we when he first encounters uh, Nick Nolte, who woof, um, in the movie theater, and then later on at his car, it's like, oh, this guy's this guy's a menace, and he's trying to be menacing, and he's clearly looking for revenge. And and he's a, an absolute caricature when we were introduced to him in the movie theater he's lighting his cigar uh, with a, a lighter that features like a, a naked woman wait, in wait, a bikini where the, where the nipples light up yeah yeah, yeah. and so he's it's playing just, a dick tracy villain like it's insane yeah yeah and th- and that's the other thing like i think it, it it's an interesting contrast to the original because like like you were saying we meet um Bobby De Niro and we know he's the bad guy or whatever but when you kind of discover his motive for this he's still a piece of shit but you're like I I get it he was the, the his his public defender didn't do his job should he have still gone to jail yeah but like he I understand the vengeance the vengeance point of it was he lost 14 years of his life it was it was you know a big deal whereas we're introduced this this um kind of so I guess we 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 doubt ourselves more in the second one of like should we be on his side? We're clearly positioned not to be on his side, but like he's doing it, he's doing the a terribly wrong thing, but maybe for the right reason. Well, it also it also it also makes the payoffs worse in the film. Like when you see Robert Mitchum, your first instinct isn't immediately, oh, uh, he's going to be violent. Mm-hmm. Like he's being threatening, but there's so many avenues to be threatened especially when you're dealing with somebody in the world of law, right? This very procedural, morally upright area that has so much in the way of technicalities and procedures. Whereas when you see, like, Bobby De Niro's presentation when you first meet him is clearly, this is a physically threatening presence. So when he ultimately results to physical violence, it's like, oh, well, yeah. Of Of course he was. He clearly... 
He has like 2% body fat for this movie. <laughs> no fucking shit he's going to be physically threatening. Whereas Robert Mitchum, when he like takes his shirt off in the the um the bayou scene late in the movie, it's like, oh shit, Robert Mitchum's like kind of hot. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, he's, he's low-key very in shape, whereas you wouldn't have expected it based on how layered he is in the film in his attire mm-hmm. where it's like kind of masking some of the physical threatening ability of him it, it's it's such again ev- every part of it is heightened yeah it's so heavy-handed the violence the suspense like every time that bobby de niro every scene he's in it's so high i mean we're introduced like you said the the dips in the jail cell then it's at the movie theater him fucking cackling with the naked lady lighter, then him, you know, uh, approaching the car and and grabbing um, the de- Nick Nolte's keys from literally from inside of his car, like it's so it's so heavy handed, which which also kind of indicates to me that it makes sense that the violence is so heightened because you know, we're expecting violence, but we were not. I mean, at least I wasn't expecting him to to physically bite off a woman's fucking cheek. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later, yeah. too. Uh, just a touch more on De Niro's character design before we move on. Uh, Bobby De Niro got all of those tattoos that you see on his person in the film. He got all those tattoos with vegetable ink so that they would eventually fade. Apparently, they faded fully about, I think I read, like, six months after production had had or filming had finished, and that's terrible. I know some of them. Some of them were like they're big, and they're they're terribly done because the idea is that he got most of these in jail, and they're also like very biblical, but in a very performative way. It's weird. Some of them I don't think really made a lot of sense either. Like there was uh, I forget what the one was on his right peck but there was like some something about Loretta with the broken heart no that's his left peck oh okay that's a, that's his stage right oh, peck it was, but his his yeah it was Jesus it was Jesus's face no there were some words there were some words I can't think it doesn't, it doesn't matter oh, okay um so he got all those tattoos he also paid a dentist $5000 to fuck up his teeth so that the the yellow ghoulish looking teeth that he had would be Ugh complete i wonder if the the calculation there is just wrap up that he then paid twenty thousand dollars to get his teeth fixed and i wonder (laughs) if his thinking there was you know what i hate sitting in hair and makeup (laughs) and spending 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 twenty five thousand dollars to get my teeth fucked and unfucked is better than spending a hundred hours over the course of however long this took to shoot sitting in hair and makeup specifically for the teeth and and the tattoos. You gotta imagine somebody and the either... tattoo. Well, I mean, ignore, I'm ignoring that one, right? Even though I wonder which one's worse. Because the thing about the even though the tattoos are fake in terms of the ink, the process you have to get the tattoos and the and healing who's is still gotten the same. that much tattoo. I was about to say anyone who's gotten that much tattoo is knows one how it still hurts and mm-hmm. two how, how much of a bitch it is to heal a big tattoo. Oh my god, he has an entire back piece. I guess although at the same time you don't care that much. Because if they look worn, it would only help. So maybe like no aquifer for this guy. Oh I'm going God. straight in the pool. That's uh, terrible. Any, uh, anyway, welcome to Tattoo Talk. <laughs> uh, 
so we so we get loosely introduced to Nick Nolte and his family uh, when the, in the very first crossing of paths is our actually our introduction to Nick Nolte and and the 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 happy little Georgian family. Uh, they go to an ice cream parlor. Someone already paid for your 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 ice cream, sir. What? Who? Robert De Niro sitting sitting threateningly in his car outside, begging the question of how did he run in, pay for the ice cream, run back out before anybody noticed. Don't bother asking; doesn't matter. And the second time around, I noticed a lot of like the you you get the family's opinions of each other very quickly. Like if you pick up the subtle digs that Jessica Lang has towards her husband when when um. Juliette Lewis ends up being like, Dad, you should have you should you should have told that stupid guy to shut up, and and he was like, Oh, what did you want me to do? Fight him? And then Jessica Lang says, You know how to fight dirty. You do that for a living. Yeah. And it's like, Oh shit. It was also weird because, like, you don't you know when we watched it the first time, and Nick Nolte gives like that big hug to Juliette Lewis in the ice cream shop, and he like, I think you know, he like jostles her hair or some something. He just he's, like physically playful with her. Watching the second time, like, right afterwards, I'm like, oh, wait, you guys fucking hate each other for, like, the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like, you two only show some level of discomfort or disdain for each other to where this little moment of trying to force the feeling of, of uh, like, love and amicability is really off-putting. But anyway, to yeah. progress down the rest of the film. So we, we then get uh, int- a, a better introduction to, to Nick Nolte as he's playing... What else would you play in a late 80s, early 90s movie to show that you're rich and an asshole? Racquetball. Uh, and he's playing it with his court clerk, um, who is a young, attractive woman from Connecticut. Why? Who the fuck knows? Uh, as someone who knew people who were court clerks, I don't know why you would leave your home state and travel 9, 12 hours south to go clerk for... A defense attorney, unless he's like a major one, which oh. is not the impression I got. You know what? I I, I think I'm putting the pieces together now. Uh, later on in the film, when Jessica Lang and Nick Nolte were fighting, she had mentioned that they moved them to another town. I'm wondering if. I think they stayed in Georgia, though, because then why else would they still have Southern accents? That's a good point. It doesn't matter. Uh, so, so basically, we, we are introduced to the idea that Nick Nolte is having an emotional affair with this woman. In a very, like, I mean, racquetball isn't a sexy sport, but they really, in the editing in this, they really tried to play up the, uh, oh. Well, and he, uh, and he, like, gets behind her and does the, here's how you do your swing, yeah. mama, kind of thing. Yeah. And of course, like they're sweaty, they're breathing heavy. Like, also, I get it. Nick, Nick Nolte does not look good in this movie, right? Like, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't get the appeal. But I, I mean, Nick Nolte is is this has got to be mid alcoholism, mm. and to the point where, like, when he's angry, I feel like he's basically in the throes of it. It's. It's not, it doesn't, it's not good. But yeah, so he, and he acknowledges the emotional affair of it. Like he acknowledges that he is hiding this woman from his wife. Um, and he's like trying to defend it as though it's like some honorable thing. Like, ah, you know how she'd be, you know, you've never been married. Like you can't tell the people that you're hanging out with the opposite sex. And it's, 
the reason I'm bringing this part up as we're kind of slowly making our way into the meat of the film is only because, like, it's weird. Not the emotional affair concept or, like, any of that stuff. In the original, Gregory Peck is is portrayed as an upstanding man of the law. Salt of the earth. Right. Again, this is just pre-Atticus Finch, but you're essentially looking at him like, oh, you're going to fight against racism in a couple years in the To Kill a Mockingbird (laughs) adaptation. Like... Yeah, on the good side, you know, like not not one of these southern gentlemen who uses his gentlemanly way to uphold the tenets of a, of a racist uh, uh, structure. You're going to, to try to tear down the walls in in a, in a sense of speaking. And in this film, and and so just real quick, to, the point of the original, I'd assume the book, though I haven't read it, but the original film was that like here's this upstanding guy happy wife, kid likes him, mm-hmm. morally upright, good at his job, everything about him is, is you know, A number one. What happens to that man when he feels as though his family is threatened and can't get the help he thinks he needs from the courts and the, from the law? What What does he do? How does he handle that? How does that guy get pushed to the point of seeking assistance from outside the confines of a law room. Which is an interesting question. Because if someone is so morally upright, what does it take? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the thesis of the first film. In this one, we are introduced to Nick Nolte basically cheating on his wife. It's a, and we find out later, gray. Yeah, we find out later on that he has literally cheated on his wife. So, like, his character is extremely flawed already so if the question is what does it take to push this man outside of the confines of a law room like in my view of nick nolte not fucking much why why would i be surprised he's a he was a he's a defense attorney at a private defense attorney firm which is like already like oh i don't trust that guy fucking at all uh, and we find out that the reason that Bobby De Niro is coming back at him, and this is basically like two scenes after the one we're discussing right now, is because he buried a report that showed that the girl Bobby De Niro's character had, had raped was a loose woman. And so it's like, okay, there's nine different reasons why Nick Nolte's portrayal of this character is already morally gray. Again, the the thesis of what does it take to push this man outside of the law room should be the answer should be well not 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 fucking much, not fucking much. Why would I want to know this from a guy who's already seeking some sort of vigilante justice via the appropriate routes? I guess if your one was to call it that of the, of law procedurals, why would I be surprised to find out that he would also hire thugs? Mm-hmm. I, I I fucking wouldn't. In a law sense, this man is a thug of the law world. Like, to to proceed to actual physical thuggery is not a huge leap. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, like, what is what is his line, right? Because it feels like we never know. And then that's the other thing I was thinking. It's like if you. You know, he, he had said at one point when he was fighting with Jessica Lang that he ended up leaving that the public defender space because he, he he just he couldn't 
defend the these bad guys. Yeah, these bad Couldn't guys. Couldn't keep putting killers on um, the streets. But then in that same breath, you know, talks about like how he he basically hates his wife because she was so sad and depressed by his terrible treatment of her that she was going to kill herself and that he like and he's become some sort of victim because he's treated her so poorly that it almost drove her to suicide like it's just a weird thing and also like it's like okay is he mad at it because i'm trying to determine like what regard does he actually have for his family or is it more about his status in the eyes of the law because you know uprooted the family, didn't give a fuck about that, all that stuff, all that context you get from that Jessica Lane conversation. But then there's, you know, later on we'll talk about the scene where um, Juliette Lewis and Bobby De Niro's characters end up uh, exchanging a very physical, physically intimate and cringy moment. Um, Nick Nolte finds out about that and like just... I'm tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, right? Like if I found out that somebody like essentially assaulted my kid, are you not fucking that guy up? You know what I mean? Like I I well, don't get that, that, that's one of the core problems with the movie is that it wants to portray Nick Nolte as a a very complex character but doesn't want to deviate from the source material far enough to say well then, let's escalate the action. Yeah, because they 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 don't in regards to his character. In what is I think a a, a weakness of the film. Like if you're going to say he's so complicated, he's so much more willing to go, you know, toe this line of morality in his regular life. Well, then show him going to increasingly farther extremes in his response to the terrorism or intimidation tactics of Max Cady. Show him being like, I'm going to go fuck him up. I'm going to go find this guy and and duff him up in the streets and let's see that guy. And it's like, no. And also, while, um, you know, Bobby De Niro's character is manipulative, Nick Nolte's character is fucking dumb. Like, if someone, he's threatening someone in public, right? He's threatening Bobby De Niro in public. And Bobby looks at him, leans in and goes, can you say that one more time or can you repeat it for me one more time in order to record him saying, saying the threat in order to then later flip a restraining order back on Nick Nolte. And it's like, you've been a lawyer for how fucking long? So we then get brought into the, the, the house, the uh, what's the, the Bowden house. And we meet Jessica Lang for real, who, she, she is in. She's troubled. She's in such a different movie. She, she is the main actress of a different film. She is the main actress of like a dark, brooding, harrowing story of a of a woman. She's in like a like a French seventies feminist film where she is trying to reckon with her station in life as an unsatisfied woman romantically and professionally. Like mm-hmm. it's, it is a completely different movie that Jessica Lang is, is acting through her teeth on. Like it's nuts. She is smoking a cigarette in every scene that she's in and she is screaming or whispering her lines. No in between. And she is, throwing so quick to throw hands 
she oh when she explodes yeah so basically like juliet lewis comes in and jessica lang's like i'm making a, a an ad for a travel agency and i don't know where to put this arrow and juliet lewis is like oh i don't really fucking care and jessica lang's like what do you mean you don't fucking care <laughs> like <laughs> get outside it's like whoa <laughs> it's it's such a bananas performance um and I, it's another funny thing where it's like in the first film, and look, I, I'm not trying to say that we have to judge everything. This podcast literally is judging yeah. first films against previous film or second films, but that's you know, a very specific uh, barometer for for this discussion. But like in the first film, the wife character is very like homely. It's very of <laughs> a plaintive character. Like she's kind of there. It's a very 1960s late 50s representation of women in in the home, which is like, yeah, she's she's there. You know, what do you want? She's a woman. <laughs> and, but then like later in the film, she's the voice of reason, right? Jessica Lange's character is basically like, why don't you fucking kill him? Why don't you fucking kill yourself too? And then I'm going to go kill myself. <laughs> and then our daughter can raise herself like an animal. And it's <laughs> And so they're like, well, we got to give the mother character more to do because we want a star here. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. So instead of being a homemaker, because this was very much so like that era of housewives aren't, that's not a job. Raising kids isn't a job. If you want to feel good about yourself as a woman, you need employment. You need to be part of the labor force. So you know what you're going to be? Well, we can't have you in an office (laughs) because (laughs) then we have to completely rewrite the movie. So we'll have her a job where she works from home, uh, something that she can, you know, really like own a space in. So we'll give her the job of graphic design, logo design, essentially, but handwritten graphic design before the advent of like the personal home computer being widespread. Mm. And it's weird because it's like such a non-factor. And I don't mean like it has to play in, but like... I was about to say Atticus Finch. Uh, <laughs> Nick Nolte, his job is important to the film, right? Mm-hmm. Juliette Lewis, her being a student is yeah. important to the film. Jessica Lange, they're like, You're, we're going to give you a job. But it's also like, why? Like, yeah. why do I know what your job is? <laughs> why do I know what project you're in the middle of? Well, I think it's it, such I... a weird thing to be like, we want you to have stuff going on, but we're also to make you feel like a three-dimensional character, but we're not going to get into it at all. So really, as far as this plays, you're as two-dimensional as ever. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I was going to say it it might, like, add into the, you know, she's so unfulfilled that that her biggest, like, concern when when she's not, you know, dealing with her tumultuous relationship with her husband is like, where should I place this arrow on the... Like, it's such a like a contrast of like, okay, I have peace and I can like lollygag around the house when my husband isn't home. But when he's not home, I know I, I, you know, I think he's cheating. And also it's like, they clearly let this kid do whatever the fuck she wants. So I I just feel like it's the, the, the contrast between my life is hell when my husband is here versus like la di da di da when he's not, you know? But it's funny because she seems so upset like, she seems disheveled the entire movie. So I get what you mean, but it's like, that's that'd be more interesting if they did it, <laughs> you know? Mm. 
Well, the other, well, because okay, so, I don't think I've. There's a scene in the movie where Jessica Lange is happy. The only scene in the movie I'd say would be that when she when we're introduced to her. I don't think she's even really happy then. No, no, no yeah, I don't. I, I think you're right. You're right. She's not happy, but like she's not. That's the only scene in the movie. She's not flying off the fucking handle. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. You know what would have been better if they had her in therapy for the infidelity of her husband. Mm, yeah, it's like well, if we want to give interiority to this character, why don't we have her literally just saying her thoughts? And honestly. It would explain her motivation for being such a loose cannon so much better because her job as a graphic designer working on a project for an ad (laughs) agency is not exactly gifting us uh, more insight to her being. Right. So in that same scene, we're introduced to Juliette Lewis. Yeah. Well, in the context of how she feels about her mom. um, And I had written down that, like, I don't know if (laughs) if it's just Juliette Lewis in general or if she's playing it up for this role, but she talks in such a seductive way. That's her all the time. And carries herself. It's just I mean, everything I've, I've yeah. seen her in. Yeah. She carries that. Like, it's just like a mysterious, I'm a little girl, you know, Juliet like, Lewis <laughs> was born a burlesque dancer in the <laughs> 1930s. <laughs> well, even like she, she, so we, we, she is wearing tassels under every shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's crazy because like you see, like I'm, I'm so glad we watched this movie a second time because I picked on, I picked up on so many different things. But like, you see the childlike playfulness and like the the caretaking thing when when she's interacting with the housekeeper. By the way, just real quick, did you pick up how old they said she was? Because I was looking for it this time. They no. didn't say it. Fifteen. Oh. They said that she was playing fifteen. Which let me tell you, folks, <laughs> Juliet Lewis has overshot fifteen by a mile in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I know. So we see that, like, when, again, so we see her at the movies, we're like, oh, okay. We see her interact with the housekeeper, and then it's just funny, the subtle switch of when she goes to talk to her mom, that's when her shirt is off her shoulder. A shirt that wasn't, like, it's not an off-the-shoulder shirt. Her shirt is completely off the one shoulder, as if she did it on purpose, just to, like, get under her mom's skin. And it's like... She's just like, she's being so cavalier with her mom. Like her mom clearly cares about this fucking project. And she's like, oh, I don't know, mom. Like, good luck figuring that out. And it's just like, I I think she just has such a, oh, oh, oh. And then I also wrote down, I can't tell if this was like the first instance that she ended up talking to her or that, or later on in the movie. But like, she, even when she's, when she's talking to the mom is like, Oh, you don't think I've been flashed before? Like, what the there, fuck? There's so many weird passing comments like that. Like, we understand that that already off the bat, Juliet Lewis has this weird, like, trying to get under her mom's skin. Like, I'm a sexy teenager and there's They're nothing to you can do. They're trying to sow discord in every single aspect of the family. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Exactly. So, we then move on and we, you know, we get that, like, I- internal inside the home dynamic down. But then we see... Um, Robert De Niro encounter Nick Nolte again in the weirdest scene because it's like he's walking down the street. I don't know where the fuck he's going. Or- yeah, he came out of a store, but I don't remember what he was in the store for. And Bobby De Niro seemingly on the wrong side of the road and like going what must have been like five miles per hour. So he did He did stop the car. I looked for it this time. He oh, okay. did stop the car because Nick Nolte like leans into the car. But like it's still like... 
I was looking to see if there would be other cars parked there. Like, does this street have street parking? Yeah. And there's no other cars that I saw. So it's like, is is this a one-way road? Is this a two-way street with no street parking that you're just like in the middle of? Or or is it like another play on like Bobby De Niro doesn't give a fuck about the law? Look at him. He's But he's more careful than that. He yeah. wouldn't have done so that. Anyway. anyway, so he's talking to Nick Nolte. And Nick Nolte, like, he still isn't losing his cool yet. Even when I looked for it this time, even when he was talking about the money, he was like, how much can I get for you? And it was hilarious because He's being like bashful. Yeah. And it's hilarious because Bobby De Niro is like, do, do I look fucking destitute? He didn't say it like that. Yeah. But like he's driving a Cadillac convertible like he's he's clearly well off. And we later find out he got left some inheritance from his mom who died while he was in prison, like 30K. So he's he's doing fine. Um, but um just another point about like the dynamic between at this point in the film between Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte when we first when um Bobby De Niro first meets him outside the courthouse he physically reaches into Nick Nolte's car and grabs his keys and Nick Nolte just turns to him and says I'd like my keys back and it's like at that point he didn't even know him because that was after the the movie theater incident. Yeah. It was just weird. So like already like Nick Nolte doesn't seem to be threatened by this person in a in the way that he we know he should be. Yeah, he's not taking it quite as seriously as we find out he should be. Right. And then after as that conversation when he's walking down the road um and and uh Bobby De Niro's in the car kind of next to him they're doing that exchange he's like how much can I give you and he's like no like this isn't about that that's that's 14 years of my life. And you were saying he did this funny like calculation of, yeah, it's it's the, he does like the whole minimum wage thing where it's like ah, oh, if you gave me, I don't know what it was like fifteen thousand dollars, you that fourteen year for fifteen years, that's uh, you know it's a thousand dollars a year. Break that down, it's less than ten dollars per day. I don't believe that's minimum wage. Yeah, that's exactly how he says it too. Yeah, Bob um, Nero said his accent. He like talked to local like small town Georgians to nail it and. I it's one of those things where it's like just because the a, a manner of speaking is accurate doesn't mean it's believable, <laughs> you know, because there are people like I was listening to someone talk about. Do you remember the uh, Andrew Garfield film uh, Hacksaw Ridge? Mm. OK, it's not a great movie, uh, but Andrew Garfield plays like a southern boy who uh, morally objects to violence, but still gets sent to. I forget if it was World War II or the Civil or the oh, not the Civil War, uh, World War II or Vietnam, one of the two, and uh, he he fights in the war as a medic uh, without a firearm. Like that's like the hook of the film. Hmm. And Andrew Garfield's playing a Southern boy, and his accent is fucking insane. And I remember thinking it like this is such a terrible performance, like it's so bad. And I heard someone talking about it, and they were like, "Yeah, but if you listen to the way that the real guy spoke, because there's interviews with the real guy." Andrew Garfield dials down the accent. <laughs> oh, my God. Because if you listen to the guy, he sounds like he's a Looney Tunes character. Yeah. And Andrew Garfield tr- actually muted that accent a little bit to make it more believable. And it's like, just because Bobby De Niro's accent might be accurate to whatever fucking random Georgians he encountered to make this role work, doesn't necessarily mean it was good. Because I don't think it was good. <laughs> but the other thing about the scene, if I can just hog time for a moment, because this is a big sticking point for me. Is that in in the original? This scene happens way later in the film. This in in, in the ninety one version is a pretty. It's one of the first uh, like 
scenes we get with both characters in it. Whereas in the later portion of the film, or in the in the original film, the sixty two version, this is I think the last meeting between the two before Gregory Peck okay's the 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 thugging the the beaten up you know goes outside of the confines of the law. This is like a last gasp. Was this when he met him at the at pier? The bar. Oh, no, at the bar. Got it. Mm-hmm. And you know. Um, Robert Mitchum, you know, like this thing, like Robert Mitchum is charming in that scene in like a weird kind of way where he's like, oh, well, if you're paying, I'll get two. You know, like he, he he's playing it like if you were just passing by. Yeah. You wouldn't think that this was a threatening conversation. Yeah. And the point that Robert Mitchum makes in that scene is 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 the is a heady concept and the true nature of his villainy that is absent from this film. That's where you learn Robert Mitchum's ultimate goal in the original, which is, I don't fucking care about your fucking money. Yeah. And I don't fucking care how you feel. I don't care that you were right. Like, we end up finding out in, in the that film that, like, Gregory Peck did all the right things and Robert Mitchum did all those terrible things. Yeah. His point was, I'm going to make you understand what it means to lose this period of your life eight years eight it's eight years in the original 14 years in the remake yeah eight years of my life are gone and i want to show you what the fuck that means and that's a weighty concept right because that idea of time it 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 can be taken i think in a lot of ways we don't have to get into like the prison system Mm -hmm. in this conversation but there's a lot behind that and it also shows like there's no reasoning with me yeah. Because the harm wasn't that I got sent to prison. It is the time that has already passed and there's no way to get it back. That's the point. In yeah. this film, Bob De Niro's like, you fucked me procedurally. Um, and we're going to kind of slapdash this money conversation by real quick because I just don't want it coming up again. And he's it, also- it, it, it loses the emotional weight of what the money means and what the time means. Right. He's My also... He's... It's so, you realize in this scene, and again, I only really noticed it the second time around, how calculated Bobby De Niro's, Bobby De Niro is in this film. Because, like you were saying, like, I don't know what it would take for, in the first one, in the in the original, you're saying, like, it doesn't matter. Gregory Peck could have jumped through every hoop there was. You know, the the bad guy... Max Robert Kate, Mitchum. Robert Mitchum was going to make him suffer no matter what. In the the remake, like Bobby De Niro gives you the illusion that like we we can we can settle this. This is how I want to settle it, or like gives you some illusion that Nick Nolte might be able to to do something about this. But then, like I didn't realize it until the second time around. And after that conversation that they have, Max Katie gets an alarm on his phone or some sort of notification or the clock strikes or whatever. And he goes, "Uh, I'm going to be late or I have an appointment or something like that. We then later find out like the appointment was to go murder their family dog to poison the dog. And, um, Oh, it's just, and again, it's not something I picked up on the, on the, on the first time around, but like, that's also when I realized like the, the piano wire was missing, Whole bunch That's of such a weird scene. The the because the scene where um, Nick Nolte races home to like find out that the dog died. It's such a disjointed set of performances because 
like Jessica Lang is like screaming and crying, tears strewn down her face, and Nick Nolte is just like hands on his hips, like, huh, what happened? And the, the and- dog, <laughs> he got poisoned. And then Juliet, Juliet Lewis, like she's just she she has no emotional attachment to this dog. And she then refers she, to it later as her mother's, mother's dog, dog, which is also bananas. And so she, um, the only time that Juliet Lewis gets upset and runs out of the room is when the parents start getting physical, which you know makes sense. Um, but it's just crazy that she that Juliet Lewis also shows no emotion in this film, other than anger and the one scene later on we'll talk about when she cries in front of her uh her her dad and then obviously later on when max katie's like trying to kill the whole family it's it's so it's so and that's where it's like i really take a side eyed glance side eyed glance at scorsese's directing because it's like what are you trying to say with this set of weird performances in this scene because like, what it reads at, when no one has emotionality except for one character, it's going to make them look too sensitive. Yeah. Or like they're overreacting or mm-hmm. whatever. But it's weird to say that Jessica Lang is necessarily overreacting. It's easy to say it because no one else is fucking emotional at all. Yeah. But that she's also so gigantic with it. But why would we also want to address her heightened sense of emotion around the family dog dying and everyone else seeming like, well, ah, shit, a dish broke. Ah, well, we can buy more dishes. Like, no, if you're Juliet Lewis and you're 15, that dog looked like it was probably, I don't know, six, seven years old, maybe. Like, you grew up with that dog. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird for you to be like, that's my mom's dog. Like, like she's the, the, the stepdaughter and her and Nick Nolte married into this woman who had a dog. Like it's, right. it's such a weird thing where it's like you look at Scorsese and you're like, what do you want me to understand from this family dynamic based on this scene? Because it feels like if there's something to be learned, all of it's wrong. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. So this then leads to what is an attempt at a tie in, I guess, to the original film that I don't, I don't fully, it, it seems like, so, so Nick Nolte goes to the sheriff, the mm-hmm. lieutenant of this. They, they're not. They don't make a big point of it. It doesn't matter. Whereas in the first film, this would be Martin Balsam, Martin Balsam's character, which had some weight um, in in over the course of the film and in, in terms of the plot. Whereas in, in this film, it's kind of just like it's Robert Mitchum. He's whatever we kind of. It was just a be just a cameo. Yeah, he's a guy. He does stuff. It doesn't really matter. And they strip search De Niro. Because the the only reason they were able to get him in is because he was saying, "Listen, someone poisoned my dog," and I and I didn't quite understand the legality of how they got Mit, um, how they got Robert De Niro in there because like they were saying because they had this whole fucking conversation Nick Nolte and the sheriff and they were, he was like, "Well, that's he was like, oh well, he wasn't on my property," and they were like, "Well, then you can't." A conversation the, that should have happened first. <laughs> Yeah, we get a better view of the tattoos. The one that I couldn't think of before, it was not Jesus. Um, also, it was the right peg. I had it wrong. Um, it is the Grim Reaper with Time the Avenger written underneath the Grim Reaper, which so, like, so, so lame. They're bro. looking for probable cause. Meanwhile, his entire body is like, I shall 
fucking come back with vengeance. <laughs> my my back is the scales of justice. We are we are going to make this so heavy handed. You won't believe it. Right. Okay. So um, basically, nothing happens with this thing because he can't charge. Well, yeah, again, it seems like it's just there to service as an introduction to Robert Mitchum's character, who will be the character that introduces um, Nick Nolte to the... Uh, Detective. The private eye, mm-hmm. who then gets, you know, more stuff from there. So it, it's kind of like a... It's really like a nothing Like a segue. Scene. Yeah. yeah. But that then brings us into the parade, which is like, for me, I think the big turning point in this film where it feels like it's going off the rails. Mm-hmm. Because... All right, so so we're half an hour into the movie, yeah. right? And a lot more has actually happened than in the original at this point. The the dog dying is a little bit later on. There's a little bit more table setting and feeling of uneasiness than there is direct action in the original. Mm-hmm. In the remake, they jump straight into the action of, of things. Yeah. So you're like, okay, like a lot's happening, but like I know where this has to go, but you know, there's an hour and 40 minutes left, right? So like... What are we going to do? Parade. (laughs) The 4th of July parade. It was very much like every, again, one of those very heavy handed, like I'm building suspense. It literally like it, it, it was as if that, um, you know, the, the wizard of Oz, like where the woman, where the witch is like bice cycling outside of Dorothy's window. I could hear that soundtrack in the back of my head every time like it was like Nick Nolte looks across at Max Katie and Max Katie looks across at Nick so, Nolte. So this is the thing. This is what I was about to say. That's exactly it. In the original, so much of the uneasy feeling comes from Max Katie's presence at places. There's yeah. not a lot happening, but you're, you're seeing Greg, you see Gregory Peck, see him so frequently that you are also, but nothing has happened yet. That's part of the point. Yeah. Where it's like, you know something is going to, is being built up here, but not no one involved knows what except for Robert Mitchum. Yeah. In this one, <laughs> Nick Nolte sees him standing across from at a parade where people go and sees Katie looking at him and goes across the parade through the middle of, of a of a full orca- uh, marching band and starts like grabbing at him and pushing him like, what the fuck are you looking at? And it's like, oh my God. This is not, this is not, this makes no sense. Also, he's so... You lost your shit. This guy killed your dog, and you were, like, deadpan in the scene where you address it with your family. Yeah. And this guy is at a parade in what we're, I think the impression we're supposed to get is not a gigantic town. And, like, yeah, he's looking at you and being mildly threatening with his presence, but, like, he hasn't done anything. Well... This is where you lose it? It was weird because um, Katie's character is wearing sunglasses and nick nolte looks across and he goes he's looking at you like to his wife it's like first of all a how do you fucking know that like does he even know your wife and secondly it's like so then he goes over there and it's like okay so you wanted to be all careful and you wanted to go by the law to because your your wife's dog died but now you're gonna assault a man in public like you're right. This is where we kind of lose the, like, where's his sense of grip on reality here? Yeah. And and this is where the film really picks up steam. Because the next scene mm. after that is the scene where Bobby De Niro goes to the bar and picks up the, the clerk, the law yeah. clerk. And this is... I'm shuddering just thinking about it's, it. It's, it's really bad and stupid um, and for a couple, for a variety of reasons. 
Number one, which is something Kel had said off off mic before, that is a really great point that I'm now going to steal, um, is that by making this a character that Nick Nolte knows and has a relationship that gets picked up at the bar, it makes it more like a revenge thing, like an attack on Nolte by proxy, mm. than it does an act of evil. Because this is kind of a, a, not kind of, this is a really big moment in the original. This is the moment in the original where you can you can finally put to bed all of your doubts about Robert Mitchum's character. Because mm-hmm. there is, again, there's that intrigue of did he do it or was he wrongly convicted? And this is the moment in the original where you go, this guy's a fucking maniac. He yeah. absolutely did everything he's accused of and he's fucking dangerous. He's physically dangerous and doesn't care, right? He's He has a compulsion for this because he's doing it while being under heavy scrutiny by... Uh, the prosecutor of the town, the chief of fucking police, and every goddamn beat cop on the street. Yeah. And so to reduce that down to what makes it feel more like a revenge thing loses a lot of its power. Mm. And it's also like he, in the in the first one, like in both cases, actually, yeah, in both cases, they get away with it. They get away with it because... A, they're they're professionals. They've done this before, but B, like they're, it, it relies so heavily on the fact that these women aren't going to speak up, which in the first one, I don't remember the reasoning, because again, that woman had no connection to Gregory Peck. But the the, 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 the reason, if I recall correctly, from the first one was essentially the woman was. Uh, loose and didn't want her entire being brought up into question and she didn't want to be seen as promiscuous and she didn't want to be on a stand to talk about it okay which is which is the exact same point that the clerk brings up as for why one of the reasons why she doesn't want to do it either what were you gonna say sorry no no i was just saying like the the it adds such a trying to sort of my fucking thoughts here. It adds such a layer to it in the remake because um, Bobby De Niro also knows that this woman isn't going to say anything because it would cause problems for Nick Nolte, which she even says when he visits her in the hospital, you know, he's like, you gotta, you gotta put this guy in. And then she was saying like, you know, I don't want to explain what I was wearing. I don't want to explain how much I had to drink. I've seen people go up on the stands and have to like go through all this shit. But then she was also like protecting Nick Nolte because while they didn't have a, a a physical relationship, she would have to explain that she was at the bar to meet Nick Nolte and he stood her up. It It is... By far, I think, the most interesting story in the film. But I do still think it it lacks some effectiveness. So Mm. I think it's one of the most interesting because this is the closest it gets towards touching on something that is very real and Mm. is, I mean, a a gray area because of the, the societal structures around being a victim of sexual assault. Yeah. Like all of the reasons that this clerk brings up of like, I've seen what you guys do to these women on the stands. Like that is a compelling and harrowing true thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to see her make this choice that is so difficult and, and so terrible, it, it it becomes understandable when she lists out immediately these reasons. You don't have to have 
they don't show flashbacks to you know cross examinations but like you get it you know it's the best job this film does and it's yeah. the it's the least work it does which is part of the point of, of failure for the much of the rest of the film I do think I do take issue with the fact like she has a chunk of face missing oh, where the God. teeth marks will match Bobby De Niro's like it's such a violent act I'm not sure you have to press charges for it I I would I think at some point like the police just, the evidence will speak for itself you don't have to, I don't think like she has a murder to be in the victim stand. the yeah. family doesn't have to press charges right, right like the, right. like the, you did a murder the police will now arrest you yeah um but one of the things that I also had. L- I just have to say loved, but so enjoyed in conversation with the original is that the woman is, is, is a drifter. And part of what makes her such an impactful character is the reason she gets chosen by Robert Mitchum is that no one fucking cares. Yeah. And she is meant to represent this outcasting of uh, sexuality and, and the fringe of society that we don't care about. Yeah. And she gives up on herself. And It's such an interesting conversation about being on societal fringes that the original deals with so much that this film just kind of ignores. And this one point, this one really great point that the film raises that is new is unfortunately very fleeting. Yeah, I agree. And also this event paints more of the 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 picture of who the wife character is by the way who Jessica Lange is in this film because in the you know after the the woman is in the hospital Nick Nolte continues to visit her gets calls at the house and as opposed to the I'm not saying you're supposed to be understanding about someone you think your your husband is cheating on you with but like given the circumstance can't you give him a a fucking break. Well, this woman was literally raped and beaten or, or at least beaten. I think raped. Because, I don't know. Because she works for him. So she, like, they're going to be on the phone. Yeah. Like So like, Hey, the deranged man that I put in jail is that has already killed our dog is also targeting other people. I know. <laughs> and that's what and like, she it's wild for her to go like are you fucking her well are you fucking her she, she even said she was like th- th- he targeted her because because you have it and then he was like which is true which is true Not for the right reasons, right but, yeah. but it's also like he targeted her because she's close to me and so whether that's an intimate sense or like a work sense and so like instead of saying like oh fuck i should be worried about myself or the safety of my daughter just immediately flies off the handle and into this monologue of you uprooted our lives and I almost killed myself and you didn't care. This is, this is the scene that they submitted to the Academy oh for, uh, of Arts and Motion Pictures <laughs> for nomination for Best Supporting <laughs> Actress. And she's like, she slaps the shit like, out of nowhere. Like right when you think the conversation dies, she just starts slapping him and yeah. punching him. And um, the other like, Jessica Lang, like I'm, I'm, it's a terrible performance. I love starting, Jessica Lang. Uh, it's but, a terrible. But even like the writing, like, like you're supposed to like she's a she's a shit person. Do you remember your point? Yeah. Well, that ties into it. Is like this is where honestly the version of this movie where Jessica all of Jessica Lang's solo shots are her in therapy would make so much more sense. Oh yeah. Because it's like if she's uncomfortable with any female relationships that Nick Nolte has or or like 
has known about this woman and found out about her somehow and has some sensitivities. Like if there is more going on other than it's a woman that you know the names of. Yeah. That you visited after she got attacked. It's like it's bananas level. Like, you know what women are? Emotional. Like right? it, it, it's it's such a man wrote a woman kind of thinking. Like to to in the most in the worst worst way yeah. of man writing women. The other thing is when um the when uh Sam the uh, Nick Nolte gets the call of the the rape and or the assault and beating of this woman, he notices the piano wire is missing. It's just like a a brief kind it's of like thing. hey this will be coming back up later right right, right. <laughs> product placement um but then there's an exchange between Jessica Lang and Nick Nolte where she calls him slippery Sam and, you know, ends up saying, I remember those days because he had lied about like the, the rape. So uh, what I'm trying to get at is Sam, Nick, sorry, Nick Nolte's character, Sam isn't forthcoming about the actual danger that this man poses to his family, which I think is a really poor choice. And so to to one end, I'm like, do I understand uh, Jessica Lange's disconcern with everything else because she doesn't understand, like, that's this Max Katie character. But then it, it comes back around because after this, that's when Katie meets Jessica Lange outside and having she she just she just heard about the the brutal things he did and the fact that. He what? killed her fucking dog, and she's just like, "Oh, you, you must be the, the whole guy." Thing. She didn't, she didn't, yeah, she and uh, as I was gonna say, it, it's it's the thing up until she finds out who he is, and then her reaction for all of the massive overacting she's done in the film. Yeah, her reaction is like, "Oh, you're the guy <laughs> that's been assaulting everybody in my husband's <laughs> life." Like, wh- yeah, uh, just a few sparse notes I had written down about scenes we'd already talked about because I hadn't checked my notes page in a little okay. while. Uh, the negative shot. Negative filters. The split diopter, you said that was called, right? Well, the, the, those are two shots. The, oh, okay. The, the one where he's sh- where, where you're getting Jessica Lang brushing or, or Nick Nolte brushing his teeth with Jessica Lang in the background is the split diopter. Okay. Which is like, and that's the thing I was about to say about the negative shot too is it's like, hey, we invented stuff, or stuff was invented recently. I just downloaded a new uh, effect <laughs> for Premiere Pro. <laughs> Can I just squeeze it into this movie? Does it make any sense? Not at all. But man, it looks so cool. Well, the three... It's nuts. The three scenes that we get this negative effect in is the beginning, the ending, and then when they're having sex. When... Makes no When Jessica Lange and Nick Nolte are having sex. So I'm like, what is this trying to say? It's like... I'm not sure if you've... How much of Kill Bill you recall, but like... When Uma Thurman is about to encounter a very dangerous situation, like right before a fight scene, right? Like mm-hmm. you got the and then and the the screen will flash red, mm. right? It's almost like a warning sign to the viewer, right? But it's it's it, but this movie is like, what if we did that right in the middle of Uma Thurman taking a shit? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Or, or right before she was about to eat some toast. It, it's like all the wrong scenes to use an effect that is very niche in how it could possibly be executed well. Well, the only re- the only time with the I- split diopting shot. It's mm-hmm. it's like brushing his teeth is when we want to feel this uncomfortable disparity in focal length. Like 
when they're having a conversation about smoking pot while he's brushing his teeth, in which I also have this as a note. Uh, Jessica Lang said, incest, necrophilia, smoking pot. Like, they're all equivalents. Like, yeah. it's like, what is the moral fiber of this group of people? Because it's all over the fucking roadmap. I know. If you're going to equate smoking pot, something that you do on your own with fucking dead bodies and fucking your siblings or whatever. And how are you also upset at Nick Nolte for cheating? Cause it seems like you have this like nihilistic worldview, but are also the most emotionally susceptible person in the film. Which yeah. Again, men shouldn't write women like this. I know. And then like, sorry to go back to the, the, the negative. I'm all thing. over the place. Don't worry. No, Cause I'm yeah. trying to understand again with that, with that stupid fucking effect. I think because again, when we were first introduced to it, Juliet Lewis's character says something to, along the lines of, it was as if the magic is gone and then you're back to reality. So maybe it's like, this is the the illusion of being in a in a uh, fulfilled marriage or having a fulfilled sex life. But then, you know, after the, the act, the magic is gone and you're back to reality. But then, but but then it goes that weird scene where it's like she's at the mirror and like she's putting on lipstick and then she sees uh, Robert De Niro in the window. So yeah, so actually the um, that scene that we're we're both talking about now that's about fourteen minutes into the film, so we skipped it way way before we we couldn't think of where it was. Um, the sex scene. Yeah, it's super like literally. So this, that's before anything happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We we, we wow. were wrong. Um. But because one of my other notes is the fact that when <laughs> when Jessica Lang when the fireworks are going off and, and they're like oh geez who's setting off fireworks this early um, Jessica Lang goes to the window and like it's a uh, it's not a French blind what do they call those blinds plantation blinds the mm-hmm. ones that that uh, it's uh, the wooden slats that go up and down um, I think they're called plantation blinds but I don't recall regardless the the kinds with the wooden slats that shift up and down. And Jessica Lang goes over and, and draws one down, and she sees the fireworks are going off at that uh, lot of land right behind their house. And Max Cady, Bobby De Niro, is sitting on the, the the wall of their property. Just looking right into her window. But what gets me about this is that she proceeds to go down the line of windows in their bedroom, flipping up every single set of blinds. Did she do th- that? Yes, looking through all of them, like, and being startled. <laughs> Being startled every time she flips it open, like oh, he's still there, he's, he's still there, oh, he's still there, and, and it's like it's like a banana scene where it's like, and that but that's the movie, right? The movie is we're going to give everyone everything to do. Yeah, this world is your fucking oyster. Right, have at it. It's a bananas moment, and then there's the this the other thing I have is during the the um, conversation in the car that we talked about earlier with the money. Uh, you don't know what suffering is, is a line that Bobby De Niro delivers, and he throws it away. And I was thinking to myself while watching it the second time, like, that should have been a hammered line. Like, of all the overacting in this film, that mm-hmm. line should have been, like, followed by three full seconds of silence. And instead, Bobby De Niro basically throws it over his shoulder while sitting in the Cadillac. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Nick Nolte offers him $10,000 for uh, sodomization. Which Bobby De Niro feels the need to specify between white and black guys, uh, as if that's a prescient point. Um, just weird, because uh, that also is not a lot of money. 
Um, and in, I believe more money was offered in the 1962 version, which is another weird point. Mm. Uh, but um, right. Oh, so- also, sorry, one other point. They they said that the dog was poisoned, but they said that like when they found the dog at home, like the dog was still at the house. They diagnosed the dog as being poisoned in the original when Gregory Peck picks the dog up and rushes it to the vet's office, whereas the vet came to the house in this one and diagnosed at the house oh, your dog was poisoned. How do you know that? Well, the- You have to bring it back to your office and like run some tests and do blood work and shit. Like- I don't know. I, it, uh, that's fair. But at the same time, Jessica Lange did give that five-minute monologue describing the death of the dog and how he was slowly... Wi- it was as if he was winding down and the clock was ticking. Like, No, I know, but my thing is like poison, all poisons are meant to affect like organs or bodily functions that could fail on their own given a certain set of circumstances, right? Like stopping the heart or, or but I imagine like foaming at the mouth. Like, I don't know. I, I see what you're trying to say. Yeah. It, it's just like, it, it's not a big thing, but it's like a dumb thing where it's like you changed the film in this way, but kept this beat of it, which makes it kind of make less sense, which maybe someone who's not seen the original wouldn't care about, or maybe someone who, doesn't care enough about the procedure of things wouldn't care about. But when you're scrutinizing something for the differences, it's like a weird, it's a weird, you did this just so that Jessica Lang could have this speech. Well, that's what because I'm saying. Because if Gregory Peck, or if, if Nick Nolte mimicked Gregory Peck's actions and brought the dog to the vet, Jessica Lang isn't there. Right. To give this harrowing detailed speech about the, yeah. the events. Uh, well, that was my point. It was like, oh, maybe they're trying to speed it along. It's like, no, in that amount of time, they gave Jessica Lang a five-minute space to just act her little heart out. Um, but after, okay, so... Um, well, I have two other notes, <laughs> and then we can move on. Sorry, I, I, I do not... I'm, I'm this so is like sorry. a two-hour-long podcast now. It's going to be so good, though. Oh, my gosh. This is the best we've ever done. <laughs> um, why would Nick Nolte be like, yeah, I want to watch the strip search? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting because he was there to identify the person, but like you don't need to to see his fucking cheetah print panties. The, to the know. lieutenant of the police department is like, you want to watch us sloughing up this guy's asshole? And Nick Nolte's like, absolutely. And it's, they made it a point to like show you the underwear that um, Bobby Dooner was wearing. So I'm like, to be like a sexually deviant kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I just don't get why, like, I don't get why Nick Nolte... It, it's there so that you can see all of Bobby De Niro's tattoos and draw meaning from them and to continue the conversation with... I don't Mitchum, know whether to look at him or read him. Which, by the way, Mitchum kills that line. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchum shows you how good this movie used to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's so weird. It's like... Uh, I don't know why you're... I don't know why you're... You don't have to be there. It's kind of weird that you are there. Which brings me to my other point of... Uh, why would a defense attorney have access to a rape victim? I know that they know each other, but the fact that like the 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 law clerk is like in a hospital bed and the police are like, yeah, random defense attorney from not the P- the public defender's office or anything, go right on in. This woman isn't pressing any charges, so there's no reason for you to be here. Oh, but why? No, no, no. She asked for him specifically. Did she ask for him? Yeah, and I mean because I think she had said, you know, I want. Sam because he's a lawyer like if you're going to talk to somebody right like well, but that's, she also- that's why I was confused because she says I'm not pressing charges I've seen what you've done 
Yeah, but I, I like the, the only way he'd be allowed in there is because she asked for him specifically by name. It's because she was expecting him when he opened the the thing. I if they mentioned it, I didn't catch it. But no, no, I, I, I don't think, think they I, mentioned I, it. I do think I'm, it's still weird, even from just the police being like, "Yeah, no, right now everyone's a suspect, so no visitors that aren't like." I don't know, family or some shit like that. I don't know. That's also a good point, especially because they know he's been wrapped up with this shit. Like, and also, like, I'm willing to bet that most rapes are done by someone that is known by the victim. Mm -hmm. And uh, if these two have a pre-existing relationship and have been seen to be uh, emotionally involved to a certain respect beyond the confines of their offices, that's probably pretty good probable cause to at least have this guy be a suspect. I don't know. It it felt so... It made more sense when in the first one, Gregory Peck is a prosecutor... And is there even, and they even hesitate to bring Gregory Peck into the scene, right? And then he's, they're like, let him kind of just be like, please press charges. And he has more sway with the police because it's like, I put your bad guys in jail. Yeah. So you're cool, do me a favor. Whereas Nick Nolte's like, I put your bad guys back out on the streets. So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Sorry, we have another half a movie to get through. Luckily, so. it speeds up from here. So after the strip search scene, Nick Nolte is like, time to meet with the private eye. And then we get the private eye person um, involved. Who's and a fucking maniac. I will say this is also a weird middle chunk of the film because it's very much so like we need to have the private eye because the private eye is in the original, but his presence is pretty meaningless right in the original his no, presence? In, in this one in the in the original the private eye eventually helps gregory peck put together the whole uh final act whereas in this one the private eye finds out nothing sorry he get he also doesn't do his job right because he gets made he does he does a bad job he gathers no information and he ends up we'll get to it but he ends up dying in in, in a way that is not conducive towards helping the film end like it's, it's a weird character involvement. But anyway, he, the the other thing is he also gets him. He's the one who organizes the three guys that end up unsuccessfully beating up. That's the one contribution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we get him. We get the fight that Kel and I talked about with like the why are you visiting her in the hospital kind of thing. Then it's Bobby De Niro pulling up to the to the mailbox to talk with Jessica Lang. Not only to talk with Jessica Lang. To bring her the dog's collar. I, I found it on the side of the road. But then but she know she knows he killed it. Like it was a really weird exchange. It it it, it is so weird. And I believe I had read that this was uh, a scene that Jessica Lang wanted to do. Of course. Jessica <laughs> Lang brought it to Scorsese, which is why I do blame her a lot for this as well. <laughs> Jessica Lang brought it to Scorsese and was like, I feel like they should meet each other. Because that's one of the things in this rendition is despite all the expansion of her character because they have so many fewer scenes of De Niro just kind of around in town there is no interaction between or no opportunity for the two of them to see each other at close range in this version of the film outside of the fireworks scene which is passing at best Mm -hmm. and then the very brief encounter at the uh, parade Outside of that, there's no shared scenes up until the final act between the two of them. Whereas in the first one, there's no interaction between the wife and Max Katie in like a real way like there is here. But she has more face time with him because he is around. Yeah. And um, this scene, I think, served to do two things. A, to draw parallels between 
Max Cady's character and Jessica Lange because there was this whole fucking monologue about how they're both unhappy. Like, you know, and she's like, you don't know me, but like, he knows her pretty, he, he, you know, he put the pieces together. Um, and then also to, we notice at the end, Juliette Lewis's character comes outside saying like, oh, someone's on the phone for you or whatever. And the mom's like, get back inside. And Katie like looks around at the daughter and then sp- speeds away. So, which, which was a weird scene because it's like, the look, I couldn't tell if it if it was supposed to be like, oh, I'm seeing her for the first time. Good. I've clocked what she looks like in my head so I can then prey on her. But she me- makes no he sense. meets him in the beginning of the film. It makes, it, I was going to say, it, there's that. And we find out later, Nick Nolte has the revelation that the most obvious way for Max Katie to poison the dog is from the inside the home. So it's like, okay, if he got inside the house, like, bitch, you know what he what she looks like. Like, you yeah. know what Juliet Lewis, it's a house with pictures of family around, not hard to find. Unless he was looking, I, I can't tell what it else didn't he was make looking any, at. It, 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 Maybe he was looking only, at a phone number in the, in, or a piece of mail that Jessica no Lane was holding. Only I don't thing know. that makes sense is what, what you had said, which makes no sense, but it's the only thing that makes, yeah. anyway. So this, then the next scene is the phone call. Oh, yeah. The next scene is Max Katie calling up, I I. I guess calling the house and just hoping that Juliet Lewis answered because I doubt they gave her her own phone line. Mm. Um, I don't know. She has one in her room. Well, yeah, but I'm not. Sh- that's I mean, like my own phone line, your own phone number. Oh, got yeah, it. Yeah, she has a line in the house, but I don't think it's it's a secluded from the other lines. Anyway, we don't have to deal with this anymore. <laughs> home phones are a thing of the no, past. No, it has to be her own line because if you're. If you're a parent, no, it has to be her online. Because if you're a parent and you know this site goes out here, are you not monitoring your kids' phone well, calls? I, I, I would agree if we had rational actors. But no, we I don't. know. It's just, it's just, no, no, it I, doesn't, it I, irks me. I, I know. So they then have this really stupid phone call where Max Katie is hanging upside down mid workout because Robert De Niro's like, I worked for this body, damn it. <laughs> I'm going to put like it in the movie. The only way. He can make his voice less like, I don't know. I thought it was like to, to suppress his. Why? He doesn't I don't know. She doesn't know what he sounds like. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and he's basically like, yeah, I'm your theater teacher. Why don't you come to the theater tomorrow for theater class? And Julia was like, oh, okay. Um, and then because this is a Scorsese film, it's like, I need to have a, a needle drop. I need my needle drop. And so they play a Aretha Franklin song, um, which it's like. We're really baking a lot of childlike innocence into Juliette Lewis here. She is she has received a phone call from someone she believes is an authority figure. She has taken it at face value and is just rocking and rolling with that. Well, the interesting thing about, again, the women in this film finding out who this person is and being unfucking phased by it. Juliette Lewis will give her a little bit more credit. She's kind of a dumb teenager, you know, a, a vulnerable teenager at that she meets, she, she's going, uh, you know, everybody else is going to class. She's like, oh, I have to go down to the theater for class. Proceeds down this dark <laughs> alley-like no basement. Way down there. No lights on, no, no soul to be found. Walks into an empty theater with like a single like spotlight on a chair in the door. Questioning nothing. <laughs> and she's like, hello. Questioning not a thing. And All then, normal to me. I know. And she starts talking with, with, um, Max Katie, yeah, 
and they 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 they're flirting a little bit you know and he's like have you you know i thought about you last night and she's like <laughs> like she's just giggling she's giddy they talk they start talking about like a sex scene in a book long story short he gets he asks her hey oh no 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 before that she she says you know she starts getting emotional she's like you're the one that killed my mom's dog aren't you and he was like oh i would never do that whatever and then she's like okay and then she brushes it off completely but he still solidifies that he's the, he's the guy she knows he's max katie at this point yeah so then he says can i come over there and put my arm around you and she doesn't say much and then she kind of gets bashful and says yes and he comes over and not only puts his arm around her caresses her face ends up putting ugh 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 ends up putting his fucking finger in her mouth and she's like she doing a little dancey dance yeah. with that finger <laughs> like more than once and then they share a kit like they make out genuinely and she then then he then leaves or whatever and she's obviously as a as a kid who's just experienced something like that shooken up but the other thing was the uh int- i forgot to mention this detail he introduces her when when he's when he meets her in the theater he's smoking a joint he gives her a puff she then apparently takes the joint home and the only reason that Jessica Lang and Nick Nolte know something's wrong is because they found a joint in her school book a are you looking through your kids school books did you smell the marijuana whatever but then they're like you know he wouldn't I, I, we don't get a scene where where Juliet Lewis tells them what happened but we know she's she's hiding details, but but the parents somehow know that it was Max Katie. I think she does tell them it was Max Katie. But like, then but then but in the when when the when the dad then or when Nick Nolte then like, you know, uh, that sets him off and he goes, fuck it. I'm going to get those those I'm going to have that private eye get those three yeah, guys to beat him up. Yeah. He makes no he makes that call. Um, but then he goes up and sees his daughter in her room and he opens the door and she is, she couldn't have been in a more seductive pose had she not been like face down ass up towards you, the door. You, you can see up Juliet Lewis's <laughs> asshole. <laughs> no, but she's sitting very like, paint me like one of your French girls. Like she's not wearing pants. She's literally in her, in her panties and like a, you know, a, a t-shirt and, he, her, her dad, again, unfazed, it was so unsettling. Maybe I have daddy issues, but like, he, he was, unfa- they were both unfazed by it. Well, and uh, he does weir- say to cover up. Eventually, but like, but still the, enters the room, the end of the sits next to her. And then he's sitting there trying to talk to her and she's literally licking her lips, biting her lips, smirking, well, smiling. And he goes, and out of nowhere, she's like, you know, he didn't force himself on me, you know. I think he was trying to make a connection with me. She fucking knew that that would tick off her dad. Like, why the fuck would you say that? Well, so so this gets into what is another really weird... So much like Jessica Lang, who I have ripped on heavily for this film, mm. I think deservedly, much like... Scorsese was like, we need to expand upon her character. They were like, we need to give Juliet Lewis more stuff to do. You know, like we need to have more to this character. There needs to be depth here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jessica Lang is dealing with how to trust the men in her life after uh, the, the you know, her husband has an affair. Juliet Lewis, the young, uh, nubile teenager is like, 
let's have her trying to understand her relationship with men as someone experiencing a burgeoning sexuality. Mm-hmm. And let's have that sexuality put upon 47-year-old Bobby De Niro. And it's creepy. And it's not just creepy in the way that the film wants it to be creepy. It's creepy because they don't do anything with it. It's basically yeah. saying, here's an inappropriate relationship. And there you go. It, it's not, it doesn't add any color to the film. It's not there to also say like, you know, uh, this is going to set up a set of actions for Juliette Lewis later, or this is going to inform upon Robert De Niro's actions. Like if they didn't have this weird sexual tension, the movie plays out how the movie is going to play out and you don't learn anything as a result of it. All it really is there for is to say, one, Bobby De Niro is still a bad guy. The woman he raped was 16. Juliette Lewis is 15 going on 16. So like the ages line up for his key rape demographic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Juliette Lewis is being able to be taken advantage of by an older man who has flexed some kind of uh, intellectual prowess as well, constantly talking about all the fucking books he's read. And it's like, uh, I understand that she is she is a, a susceptible person at this point in time. She, she's an easy target. You showing me that, though, doesn't do anything. It, it is, well, it, it doesn't, it, you're not giving her character depth by making it, by acting out the susceptibility of her character. And also, like, she's leaning into it heavily because i'm like oh she didn't know no she knew who max katie was maybe she and didn't understand even, the extent and it's of not what... even like she's she we see her striking out with all the boys in her grade you know what i mean It'd be we one don't, thing... the only relationships we at the, with males we see is with her dad and with max katie yeah it's not like she has been incapable of reaching some sort of connection or physical that's the other thing you think when you're watching this movie like she's a good looking girl that has friends goes to a uh you know a co-ed school so there's boys around are you telling me that she's so depraved uh deprived of 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 male attention and affection which seems so readily available that she's jumping on the bones of max katie i think it makes no sense i think it's about being understood dad oh okay oh well because my thing is like she's so readily jumps into max katie's arms theoretically right maybe and literally but um, because he, he spends time on the phone with her saying, you know, it's your parents. You shouldn't, you should use the anger. Like he really like validates what she's been feeling because she, he knows how tumultuous the, the relationship, how it is at home. So like, and, and we see in another scene, she tries to call Nadine, who's only brought up maybe once, maybe twice, twice yeah. or three times in the movie to talk to so it's one thing to be to be validated or understood by your like your girlfriend who's the same age it's another thing for someone who's like tip you know theoretically your father's age or older an older male for him to say yeah your parents are wrong and you know you are not only valid in what you're you're saying but like also I'm attracted to you well again that's a thing i understand what the movie yes she is seeing she she is uh, getting a validation from not just an outside character, not just the opposite sex, but also someone of her parents' age. She has a tumultuous home life. It's been rocky. I, you know, like we get it. It's just that you're not doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and at anyway. Yeah. So that leads to what? What? Oh, I was gonna say. I think that leads to the the beat up scene. Well, so they have a, a brief interaction at uh, the the restaurant. 
um, which I don't remember really oh, at all. No, that that's because he, that's when he recorded. You're right. His, Thank you. I was going to say I don't remember what happened there. And then it it is Max Katie getting duffed up in the parking lot. At, sorry. Go ahead. It. It, it again just plays into the fact that Max Katie is so calculated because like he he did that and and I don't know maybe if he knew in advance the in no, advance that but like he also had that on de- that recording on deck to use when he needed it like he oh was I think very you meant the smart. beating up okay I got you yeah yeah no 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 you're right you're I was saying that. I was saying I don't know if he knew he was gonna get beat up oh but, no I don't think so. So even that being said, he still knew to record that threat to use against Nick Nolte should he need it. Just so happens he 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 acted quickly and needed it readily. But um, yeah, so it's a dumb scene. Um, you know, Bobby De Niro gets beat up, and for some fucking reason, uh, Nick Nolte is there within earshot. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, Gregory Peck does see the beating up occur in the original, but he's at a great distance and uses binoculars. Yeah. Um, and Max Katie just kind of understands it to be Gregory Peck. Whereas in this one, they don't, Nick only doesn't actually get spotted by Max Katie, but only because one surmises Katie chooses not to have him spot him. But the fact that Nick Nolte shows up to a seedy parking lot in the middle of the night to observe a hit essentially is bananas. And also, it kind of shows his cowardice a little bit more. So that then brings us to the scene where you basically get uh, a reason to have Martin Balsam in the movie, um, which is the uh, and Gregory Peck. Sorry, just to squeeze both of them into into one scene uh, where you get the restraining order in the court scene. Wait, who? Sorry, I didn't get that. Who's who's which one's Gregory Peck? Max Katie's lawyer. Oh. And Martin Balsam is the judge. Got it. So then we get the... So this is where in the original film we get the the big plan at the end. And we get a heavily altered version of it in this film, which I hated. I don't know about you. So the idea of the original plan in the original film is Max Cady is looking for... Uh, is looking to attack Gregory Peck's family so that he will experience that loss. And then he would attack Gregory Peck, right? He wants him to experience all the loss possible. Mm-hmm. So the plan is, let's give me a reason to get on the plane. I'll go to the airport, check in, and then there'll be a, a car waiting for me on the tarmac. I'll leave, but the flight records will have me on the plane. And then the family will go to Cape Fear, Uh, where we have a houseboat and I will secretly meet them there along with uh, I think one police officer and the, the, the private dick Mm -hmm. and a private eye, the private detective. Oh, Oh I thought you said private dick. I did. That's what, that's what they're called. Okay. So, um, then they do that and that leads to the, you know, big final scenes the uh, climax of the film in this, they kind of do that almost. So what they do is Nick Nolte goes to the airport. He checks in. He then leaves the airport. Bobby De Niro like does the same thing. Then they go back to the house where the, the private Dick in this one is like, let's set up a system of wires. (laughs) 
around the and house teddy bears. Uh, uh, attached to the windows and the doors, all attached to this one teddy bear so that if anything opens, it'll pull the teddy bear towards the door or window that have been open. Uh, I'm watching so I can go to it so I can then investigate. And at this point also, you know, both Nick Nolte and the private eye have guns and it is, you know, they're, the the women in the house too are aware that this plan is unfolding and stupid. Yes. Yeah. So uh, surprise, surprise. This is when Nick Nolte has the revelation that like, oh my god, he, when he poisoned the dog, he must have been in the house. Right. And he goes downstairs right after we find out that um, Bobby De Niro had killed the maid, donned her attire and a uh, wig, <laughs> and. <laughs> It looks like had applied some kind of tanning, but maybe it was just like makeup, his sun-beaten face already from being yeah. in Georgia um, to launch a sneak attack on the private deck. Also, it was it, he was he just had the the black eyes from it looked like makeup, but he was just you might be right. gotten beaten. Um, there's a lot that's wrong with that, which is like if you had the ability to kill the maid sneakily, why did you have to dress up in a disguise to kill the private eye? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He makes a point of also saying, I learned that trick in prison, which invites a whole other host of questions <laughs> I have that we don't have the time for. But it's really quite silly. Um, it also employs the use of the piano wire that had been got out before as though he had planned on doing this the whole time, which mm. is so wildly unpredictable. That's I, like, a good he, point. Like, he, he is smart and calculating. I don't know how you expect us to believe he planned this. And I to say was... that he could use it at some point in time would be like, okay, that's fine. You want to use it in a different circumstance, but then why specifically the piano wire? Because then that puts the onus of the meaning on the piano wire itself, which doesn't mean anything. Yeah, because the other thing I was like, oh, the piano is something that they play. He'll notice that someone must have been in the house to take it. That's the only. But like, yeah, for it to come back full circle, this thing he doesn't really notice. It, and and the, the 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 moment of clarity of realizing that Katie was in the house was the dog being poisoned. No, like, no, no. You he notices. I, he you notices, I notices that the piano. He knows that the piano string isn't there. And we as the audience notice it's not there. And we as the audience say Katie was in the house. But Nick Nolte's character only goes. The dog being poisoned. Like he doesn't even tie together the piano wire thing. It's, yeah. It doesn't matter. It's not a reveal, even when it's a reveal to the audience, but not to. to right. Him. Anyway, so the other thing is when we see the the you know the the uh, Juliet Lewis comes down and sees you know her the whole family Graciela. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody comes down, yeah. but she sees she sees Graciela like slaughtered in the room, and this is like. She gets the most emotional she's been in the film. And I think it finally settles into her how dangerous he is. But it didn't sink in when they had to rig the house and hire a gunman. Which was like, where did you think this was going? And also, I didn't, I watched it, I realized it the second time around. He had left Sexus, a book yes. for her on the front porch, which she readily took, didn't mention at her fucking family. Like, she's, it's like, Mm. so I again i think that was the turning point of her being like oh i fucked up with seeing graciela dead because that was someone she really cared about and so that brings us to finally the namesake of the film which is going to cape fear mm. now in the original they go to cape fear again as uh, as part of a coordinated plan knowing that 
uh, Robert Mitchum would follow them and they could have a last stand. It, instead, in this film, they're going to Cape Fear. It's like a they're last fleeing. resort. Yeah. Yeah. And Max Cady isn't able to follow them. He instead latches himself onto the bottom of their car. Yeah. Which becomes kind of an iconic moment from this film, but is still like bananas. Right. And like, there's no impression that this will be a last stand. They instead think that they're finding safety and solace, which brings us into the, uh, the, the big final draw of the film. So we're just going to power through all the way to the end. Cause it's, it's a big hefty joint. Essentially De Niro, Go ahead. I was going to say, from here on out, like, it is a quick progression. They don't get, like, a night in the houseboat of calm. De Niro gets there quickly and immediately starts same... getting got. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it, maybe they, actually, maybe they get one night in the original. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. So, essentially, she, uh, she, De Niro gets Nolte, like, real fast. Mm-hmm. Like, pulls him up, hog ties him, goes downstairs and... Starts trying to fuck Jessica Lang. He stuffs Juliet Lewis in like a storage compartment kind of thing, and uh, then they break out. And he he gets a, a whole speech about like, ah, I'm holding this flare thing, and I, my mama drank battery acid or some bullshit. Uh, so that then leads to the uh, everybody being tied up and. Uh, Nick Nolte's like, no one's driving the boat. Uh, and then predictably the Titanic situation happens where like they hit something and the boat gets torn asunder. Jessica Lange gets yet another monologue. The Juliette Lewis character ends up kind of saving the day, like, you know, more than once a little yeah. bit. Um, and everyone gets thrown to shore. Uh, Juliet Lewis and Jessica Lang are relatively safe, joined together. Uh, Nick Nolte and Bobby De Niro end up right by each other, and they have a, a, a brief physical encounter. And a very burnt up Bobby De Niro. Yeah, he gets uh, he gets like you know when you took a, a, a match to like an axe spray can, uh, yeah, he gets that happening up to his face. Literally, he he it's is also engulfed in flames. I will say this is really really bad special effects though because they represent the burns as being healed which is a big issue i have with this ew if you look at the stills from the film there's skin like it's all bubbled and like it's it's like it's already scarred over and then they just kind of like flicked blood on his face yeah but it's not burns which is the removal of skin gross 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 one thing i will say juliet lewis and ever, I didn't appreciate how she conducted herself in this scene because she got so fucking lucky each time. She got really lucky that she could get the um, find the lighter fluid, and then she also got really lucky that he that Bobby De Niro lit a cigarette or a cigar directly in front of her so that she could light uh, him on fire. And then they got lucky again when he was about to like kill them essentially. And when he was asking him, Hey, everybody take off your clothes, take off your clothes. And then the boat hit a rock and it's like, you guys didn't stand a fucking chance here. Well, no, because there's no plan associated with this. Mm -hmm. And what the original film does really well is this whole scene. The, there, there's two guys who are staking out the joint in in addition to Gregory Peck being on alert, Max Katie kills both the guys silently yeah. Right, which is another big thing in the film, and then starts to go after the family. And originally, he goes after the wife, right? And so Gregory Peck is like, "I got to go save my wife. Like she's being targeted. Her, the wife and the daughter get split up. 
mm-hmm. right? As there's a, a boat part of the houseboat and kind of like a more stationary part of the houseboat. Mm-hmm. And just as Gregory Peck is getting to the wife who he had heard screaming, she reveals like Max Katie isn't here. He was just using my fear to get you to come here. He's going after our daughter. Yeah. And then Gregory Peck, who was already feeling against the clock and trying to get to his wife before anything bad happened, is now even more against the clock. And there's an even we've we've managed to escalate the fear just with that minor turn and that that brief separation. And yeah. as Gregory Peck gets his way over to um, where Max Katie is again to have another fight with him. Yeah, there were so many encounters in the first one, and and part of it was like a plan partially working partially not working you know th- there was parts of it that uh, had an effectiveness that the failure in which led to yes some needing to you know navigate around it but also like showed some cleverness on the part on both parties that are just missing from here because like you said it's all luck mm-hmm. so the boat's destroyed literally in pieces shattered um, they wash up on the shore. Like I said, Jessica Lange and, and Julia Lewis wash up on the shore. Safe they're fine. And all alone. Mm-hmm. Katie and Nolte are right next to each other. They beat each other up a little bit. And then Nick Nolte is able to, because uh, uh, Max, Katie, Bobby De Niro gets handcuffed to the um, uh, a railing that is floated along down the shoreline with him. And Nolte is able to free himself, pick up a big boulder, and right as he's about to smash it down onto Max, Katie's head... A, uh, a sudden tide pulls Katie slightly to the left, <laughs> which prevents him from being uh, murderized. Well, the film then cuts back to that same black and white negative shot uh, no. of Juliet Lewis's. I'm looking right at it. Cuts back to the black and white negative shot of Juliet Lewis's eyes and ends. You missed the part where he drowned. De Niro drowned. Yeah, he drowned. He. That's how he he's he sinks to the bottom because his leg is tied with the handcuffs, and as he's drowning, he's singing hymns or prayers, or something of that sort. Nick Nolte watches him die, and they're staring at each other as it happens. And you're then right. I, I, I you're right. It's I right. forgot that. You're and right. then um, at the the ending was really interesting because it's like the mom and daughter, who we've seen kind of have this weird relationship the whole movie are. are you know, together and safe and sound, but separated from Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte has this scene where his his hands, he looks down and there's blood all over them. And then he quite literally washes his hands of the situation. And it's like, that's how it ends. But then we go back to how we started in the film. We have that negative shot and the um, the ending monologue from Juliet Lewis is, if you hang, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, but if you hang on to the past, you die a little every day. And, for my, and as for myself, I know I'd rather live. And that's how it ends. One little hilarious note that I want to um, add here it was, um, uh, did they not check the weather before they went to the houseboat? LOL. <laughs> like, there was a storm like you wouldn't believe. And again, though, that's the stupidness of the escalation. Like, there is no storm in the original. Not that there, like, can't be bad weather, but it's like they don't need... It's, it's like the storm here is clearly added for... One, traditional tension. Yeah, yeah, dramatic effect. And two, because otherwise, without it, this family would have died. Right. Because the storm is what saves their life. And which I, I, you know, I get that they're making some 
religious allegories here, you know, with the singing of hymns during the drowning and yeah. the blood on the hands, basically in fucking stigmatas right. on Nick Nolte's uh, hands at the end before he washes his sins into the water, a, a baptism reference yeah. amongst other things. Like, yeah. There's heavy religious allegory here, but it's also so unearned. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Well, so many ughs. All right. So for the fi- final final questions... Or, or, or thoughts, I guess, um, mm-hmm. on this one. Because, you know, so we've done this a bunch of times with, with sequels. So, you know, we've talked about the, the expansion of, of a world into, uh, you know, a, a new setting or, or a new storyline, the addition of characters or the subtraction. Uh, how do you feel kind of overall about the revamping? So let's start with a story. Speaking broadly. I think the first movie was just more effective in its story, in its in its character development, and in, in everything. I mean, I, I I understand from a, you know, you have the... I think the, the best thing about the remake was the, the, the big names that they got. But even then, the performances didn't even feel re- really suited to the story. I think... I think if they, they could have remade this, I know the idea of a, a remake is to not make it a carbon copy of the original, but like if they could have made everybody less of a caricature of who they're supposed to be, then I think it would have been better. I, I don't know. I don't think it was a very effective remake. No, I am. Um... It's also so strange because it, it feels like Scorsese points and it feels like Scorsese doing a pastiche at, at many points as well. Like he's trying to stick to some sort of framework, but adding in his own uh, viewpoints on it. Like it, it doesn't feel like the same guy that did Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, both starring De Niro as well. Or, or it doesn't feel like the guy who did uh, C- Casino or Goodfellas, like like which both are are both De Niro films after this one. Like it's, it's such a weird point in his directing because like, he's so established. He's 20 years into making movies at this point. Mm -hmm. And this one felt like I'm trying in a way that I don't usually think of Scorsese as like trying, trying in a way that didn't serve the story. To that end, how do you feel about the representation of the characters, which we had talked about at length here? I think they made a mistake by making Juliette Lewis's character, by giving her those traits or that, like, not, not you know, she had enough vulnerability just being a child around the same age of the, of the victim. They didn't have to make her this horny, you know, dumb, like, almost like just, just so much like a very angsty teenager. I don't think they needed to do that. And, and, and you get like, okay, if you had parents like Nick Nolte and Jessica Lang, sure. You might turn out a little fucked up like that too. But like, I just feel like you could have had all the same plot points happen in the movie without making her so like, well, that's the original wanting of it. It's the, uh, right. Exactly. For sake of time, I've skipped over a lot of it, but like there's a lot of other, points i had about those characters but i said in sake of time this podcast is still gonna be two hours long oh my god um <laughs> so would you like to see this film because we we in speaking of sequels i've asked like you know uh, 
do you think that they're trying to make a franchise out of this uh, or uh, additional sequels to come later? What would you want to see from a, a, a different version of the story, a different remake entirely, if this was going to get made again in the next few years? Story beats that you would like uh, changed back to the original or, or, or new avenues? It's hard to wish for a modernized version of this story. Um, but I don't know, something that, that I, I would like a little bit more to be left up to the imagination and a little bit more of that doubt and that like suspense, that natural kind of progressive unfolding suspense that the first one had, you know, that ultimately like reaches a climax of the movie versus like the constant, like, I don't know, just, just beating you over the head with it kind of really heavy handedness of the of the this remake so if, if i were to to kind of choose the format of a remake i think it would look a lot more like the first one in the in the subtlety but it, but it's tough because like in the remake you want you want more uh, uh you, you want to up the ante a little bit as far as like well the characters the and stuff, i don't right? think you have to necessarily up the ante as so much choose where else you'd like to focus because that so that's the point i would make i would say i want to return to the noirish elements of the original right the what does that dustier mean? elements of it like we if you where the 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 tone is dark and somber mm. amidst all of the the action and the fighting as opposed to the tone being more frenetic like it this is a frenetic hairy movie whereas the first one the original is is more like a classic noir film. It's a yeah. little bit more subdued. Yeah. And I think that serves this idea better. Like, and like you're saying with the doubt, like it's tough to have a hairy movie like this that also has subtle layers of doubt in it. You know what? I think that if I were to see a remake, I'm not necessarily wanting flashbacks to the, to the 14 years or the eight years prior of when, you know, the trial happened and the things unfolded. But if there was more of a layer of, you know, this isn't actually just vengeance, it's also, I didn't go in and come out a changed man. Well, so, see, this is what I was going to say. The, the two aspects of the film that I really, really would have liked to have a whole bigger dialogue on would be a commentary on the prison system. Mm-hmm. Which is, let's say, like, I ain't reformed for shit, bitch. Yeah. And to have the villainy of the character be, in part, an analog to how our prison systems do not encourage reform. Yeah. And the point that was made earlier about the the women who end up getting abused in the middle of the film and their comments on, in the original instance, life as a victim on the outskirts of society yeah, and life as a victim who has knowledge of the process and how harrowing the process, the actual process of justice is. Yeah. Both those conversations are fascinating that I you agree. can devote more time to in sacrificing some of the less interesting elements that this film delved into, like all of Juliet Lewis's scenes. I agree. And maybe in a, in a more ideal remake, it is like that flashback, but more so the flashback to what he didn't kill that. The first victim right okay maybe a flashback to that woman the original maybe that's how we open right the original woman on the stand and like all of the questions and the terrible process and everything and we don't see the you know the the uh, max katie isn't revealed 
until later. Um, that might be interesting, but. All right. Well, I think we covered it. Oh my God, did yeah. we cover it? Back Do you have any front. final thoughts before we get out of here? No, I actually very much appreciated this. I think I, I like remakes better than sequels, but you know, we'll see. We'll throw some more bad sequels your way and see how you feel. <laughs> well, Cal, thank you so much for, uh, for having this discussion. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Take care. Adios.